This is Finding Center, a daily hour of spiritual focus. Today on Finding Center, the theme is Gladly Spread the Light. In the first half, Thomas S. Monson shares his address, Be a Light to the World. Then in the second half, John Telford speaks on Gladly, Gladly We'll Walk in the Light. I wonder what I might say to you today, knowing that this is one of the most marvelous audiences in the world. Nothing quite like it. We'll always remember this meeting, where we were and who we were sitting next to and what songs were sung and what words were spoken. So I pray that I might have the direction of the Lord as I express my thoughts to you. What a glorious sight you are. It's an honor, my young friends, to be here with you. I feel a tremendous weight of the responsibility, which is mine, to provide you with a message which will hopefully be helpful to you, not only for today, but indeed throughout your lives. As I gaze at this vast audience, I'm reminded that each of you is one of a kind. Each has had experiences unique to you and you alone. You've come to Brigham Young University from locations across the country and the world. You come from varied backgrounds, and yet there's much that we have in common one with another. We know where we came from, why we're here, and where we will go when we leave this life. We know that we're children of our Heavenly Father and that He loves us. We know we want to return to Him after we leave this earthly existence. We know that what we do and don't do here in mortality is of utmost importance. We also know that should we fall short, our Savior has provided us with the precious gift of the Atonement, and that if we change our lives and our hearts, and take advantage of the power of the Atonement, our sins and shortcomings will be forgiven and forgotten. We have in common the gospel of Jesus Christ, and we know it's our responsibility to share the truths of the gospel with others. One of the chief ways in which we can share the gospel is to be a righteous example. And it's about this that I wish to speak to you today. The Apostle Paul admonished, Be thou an example of the believers in word, in conversation, in charity, in spirit, in faith, in purity. He also wrote that the followers of Christ should be as lights in the world. This is what I'd like to hope for each of us, that we might be a light to the world What is light? Webster's Dictionary lists no less than 15 definitions for the noun light. I prefer the simple, something that illuminates, close quote. Just as turning on a light switch in a dark room will bathe the room in light, so providing an example of righteousness and therefore being a light can help to illuminate an increasingly dark world. Each of us came to earth having been given the light of Christ. Said President Harold B. Lee, 
every soul who walks the earth, wherever he lives, in whatever nation he may have been born, no matter whether it be in riches or in poverty, had at birth an endowment of that first light, which is called the light of Christ, the Spirit of Truth, or the Spirit of God, that universal light of intelligence with which every soul is blessed. Merlin and I spoke of that light, that Spirit, when he said, For behold, the Spirit of Christ is given to every man, that he may know good from evil. Wherefore I show unto you the way to judge. For everything which inviteth you to do good and to persuade to believe in Christ is sent forth by the power and gift of Christ. Wherefore ye may know with a perfect knowledge it is of God. Close quote. Unfortunately for many, that light which all were endowed at birth has dimmed, in some cases, almost to the point of being extinguished, as outside influences have come to bear and the sometimes harsh realities of life have been experienced. Ours is the responsibility to keep our lights aflame and burning brightly that they might shine for others to see and follow. With the decline of religion in our society, many people have come to feel that they are sufficient unto themselves, have no need of higher power. Wrong. A loss of religious faith implies a loss of faith in anyone greater than oneself. In Second Nephi we read these words, so pertinent today. Oh, the vainness and the frailties and the foolishness of men! When they are learned, they think they are wise, and they hearken not unto the counsel of God, for they set it aside, supposing they know of themselves. Wherefore their wisdom is foolishness, and it profiteth them not, and they shall perish." It can at times be easy to fall into the erroneous thinking that we ourselves are capable of handling anything that comes our way, that we have all the answers, and that there is no need for assistance from a higher power. When we realize, as one person put it, that we are not human beings having a spiritual experience, we are spiritual beings having a human experience, we come to understand where our main emphasis should be and on whom we are reliant. In order for us to be examples of the believers, we ourselves must believe. I would think that each of us within the sound of my voice has a testimony, although our testimonies are no doubt of varying degrees. It is up to each of us to develop the faith necessary to survive spiritually and to project a light for others to see. Amidst the confusion of our age, the conflicts of conscience, and the turmoil of daily living and abiding faith becomes an anchor to our lives. Remember that faith and doubt cannot exist in the same mind at the same time, for one will dispel the other. 
Among the most effective ways to gain and keep the faith we need would be to read and study the scriptures and to pray frequently and consistently. Many years ago, I was shown the flyleaf of a triple combination given to the late Maureen Lee Wilkins by her father, President Harold B. Lee. He had inscribed it, the front two pages, they were blank, with these words, April 9, 1944, to my dear Maureen, that you may have a constant measure by which to judge between truth and the errors of man's philosophies, and thus grow in spirituality as you increase in knowledge, I give you this sacred book to read frequently and cherish throughout your life. Lovingly, your father, Harold B. Lee. Close quote. Wise words which can apply to each of us. Brothers and sisters, have you read the Book of Mormon? Have you put to the test the promise found in Moroni, chapter 10, verse 4? asking your Heavenly Father with a sincere heart, with real intent, and having faith in Christ, whether or not that which is found in that book is truth. May I share with you the experience of Brother Clayton M. Christensen as he sought to know for himself. Brother Christensen has served in many positions of leadership in the Church, including in Area 70, He's received far too many academic awards for me to mention here. He is currently the Robert and Jane Sissick Professor of Business Administration at the Harvard Business School. He's also an alumnus of Brigham Young University. And I believe his son Spencer and daughter Catherine are currently students here. When Brother Christensen finished his schooling at Brigham Young University, he received a scholarship to go to Oxford University in England as a Rhodes Scholar. When he arrived at Oxford, he realized that it would be somewhat challenging to be an active member of the Church in Oxford. The Rhodes Scholarship Trust that had been given him, his scholarship, had a lot of activities for the recipients of the scholarship. And if he were going to be active in the Church, it would be difficult for him to participate in those activities. He intended to obtain in just two years a degree in Applied Econometrics, a program which took most students three years to complete. This, of course, added to his lack of extra time. He realized as he thought through how involved in the Church he could be that he didn't even know for certain if the Book of Mormon was true. He realized that he had read the Book of Mormon seven times up to that point, and after each of those seven times he had knelt in prayer and had asked God to tell him if it was true. He had received no answer, as he thought, through why he hadn't received an answer. He realized that each time he had read the Book of Mormon it was because of an assignment, either from his parents or a BYU instructor or his mission president or a seminary teacher, and his chief objective had been to finish the book. But now, as he was about to commence his studies at Oxford, he realized that he desperately needed to know if the Book of Mormon was true. He recognized as well that he had sustained himself on a belief in many of the doctrines of the Church and in his parents because he knew they knew it was true and he trusted his parents. Here he was, however, desperately needing to know for himself 
if it was true. Oxford University is the world's oldest university. The building Brother Christensen lived in was built in 1410. It was beautiful to look at, but horrible to live in. <laughs> the only heat which was provided was from a small heater inserted into a hole which had been dug in the wall. He decided that he would commit every evening from 11 p.m. to 12 midnight to reading the Book of Mormon, this time with the purpose of determining if it was true. He wondered if he dared spend an entire hour each night because he was in a very demanding academic program. He just didn't know if he could afford allocating such an amount of time to this effort. Nevertheless, he did allocate the time, and he began at 11 p.m. by kneeling in prayer by the chair by his little heater, and he prayed out loud. He told God how desperate he was to find out if this was a true book. He told him that if he would reveal it to him that it was true, then he intended to dedicate his life to building this kingdom. And he told God that if it weren't true, he needed to know that for certain, too, because then he would dedicate his life to finding out what was true. Then Brother Christensen would sit in the chair and read. He began by reading the first page of the Book of Mormon. When he got down to the bottom of the page, he stopped. He thought about what he'd read on that page, and he asked himself, could this have been written by a charlatan who was trying to deceive people, or was this really written by a prophet of God? And what did it mean for Clayton Christensen in his life? Then he put the book down and knelt in prayer and verbally asked God again, Please tell me if this is a true book. Then he would sit in the chair and pick up the book and turn the page and read another page, pause at the bottom and do the same thing. He did this for an hour every night, night after night, in that cold, damp room at the Queen's College in Oxford. By the time Brother Christensen got to the chapters at the end of Second Nephi one evening, when he said his prayer, and sat in his chair and opened the book, all of a sudden there came into that room a beautiful, warm, loving spirit that just surrounded him and permeated his soul and enveloped him in the feeling of love that he had not imagined he could feel. He began to cry. He didn't want to stop crying, because as he looked through his tears, at the words in the Book of Mormon, he could see truth in those words that he never imagined he could comprehend before. He could see the glories of eternity and what God had in store for him as one of his sons. Brother Christensen said he didn't want to stop crying. That spirit stayed with him for the whole hour. Then every evening as he prayed and sat with the Book of Mormon by the little heater in the room, that same spirit returned, and it changed his heart and his life forever. President Ezra Taft Benson, 13th president of the Church, said, When you choose to follow Christ, you choose to be changed. The world will shape human nature, but Christ can change human nature and change men and women can change the world. Brother Christensen has indicated that he loves to return to Oxford. Most of the people there are either students or tourists who come to look at a beautiful university. 
But he loves to return there because it's sacred to him. And he can look at the windows of that room where he lived, and he recognizes it as the place where he learned that Jesus is the Christ and that Joseph Smith was the prophet of the Restoration for the Church. Brother Christensen has stated that he looks back at the conflict he experienced when he wondered if he could afford to spend an hour every day apart from the study of applied economics to find out if the Book of Mormon was true. He says, and I quote, I use applied econometrics maybe once a year, but I use my knowledge that the Book of Mormon is the Word of God many times every day of my life. In all of the education that I've pursued, that is the single most useful piece of knowledge I have ever gained. Close quote. Brothers and sisters, many of you probably came to Brigham Young University already knowing that the Book of Mormon is true, that Joseph Smith is indeed a prophet, and that this is the true Church of Jesus Christ. Some of you, however, may still be living on the testimony of others—your parents, your friends, your Church leaders. May I suggest that, as Brother Christensen did, you set aside time every day to find out for yourself if the Book of Mormon is a true book, for it will change your heart and change your life. If you seek this knowledge with a sincere heart, with real intent, and having faith in Christ, I promise that you will receive an answer. And once you know that the Book of Mormon is true, then it will follow that Joseph Smith was a prophet of God. You will have that burning testimony and knowledge that this Church is true. Such knowledge, such a personal testimony is essential if we are to safely navigate the sometimes treacherous paths through life with the adversary attempting to deceive us at every turn. As you keep the flame of testimony burning brightly, you will become a beacon of righteousness, even a light for all to see. Said the Savior, Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. I share with you an example of two individuals who let their light shine and whose good works were recognized and appreciated. Several years ago, I received a letter from a lady whom I did not know but who chose me, for whatever reason, to write to concerning the example of two members of the Church who had an influence for good in her life. Her letter begins, Dear President Mawson, then she writes, quote, I would like to commend two of your Church members for their extraordinary compassion and faith. I am a practicing Catholic and grew up in Salt Lake City. Oftentimes as a youth I remember feeling ostracized by the other children who lived on our block because I was not a member of the LDS Church. I must admit that this impression has stuck with me for many years until my encounter with Rick and Dad McIntosh. Last year my sister's husband, Tom Brown, was diagnosed with a malignant brain tumor was given one year to live. He passed away last week. Of course, neither my sister nor her husband are members of your Church. For the past year, Rick, who is the bishop of the ward close to my sister, and Dan, has spent countless hours with my sister and her family. They prayed numerous times for Tom, and their wives have brought food to the house. They shoveled the walks in the winter, and each time they've come, they've asked my sister if there was anything she needed that they could do. 
and they meant it. It was not important to them that my family was not LDS. Tom was their neighbor and their friend, and they were there to do whatever they could to help. These two men truly lived their faith, and I feel deeply moved by their compassion and example. From one who used to indulge in Mormon bashing, I am writing this letter to tell you that through the example of these two men, not only will I never again criticize the LDS faith, but I will not allow it to be criticized in front of me. Your Church has my deepest respect." Our opportunities to shine are limitless. They surround us each day in whatever circumstance we find ourselves. As we follow the example of the Savior, ours will be the opportunity to be a light, as it were, in the lives of those around us, whether they be our own family members, our co-workers, mere acquaintances, or total strangers. It has been my opportunity through the years to associate with countless individuals who I would consider to be outstanding examples, even lights to the world. There is a special spirit we feel around such people which makes us want to associate with them and to follow their example. I would venture to guess that some of you in this audience are members of the Church today or have become active in the Church because of such examples. When we encounter them, they are a powerful influence, for they radiate the love of the Savior and help us to feel His love for us. In speaking of those who are unafraid to live lives of righteousness, an example, I am reminded of one of the missionaries who served in eastern Canada when I was the mission president there. He was a special young man by the name of Elder Roland Davidson. He was dedicated, hardworking, and obviously loved the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then he became very ill. After weeks of hospitalization, as the surgeon prepared to undertake extremely serious and complicated surgery, he asked that we send for the missionary's parents. He indicated there was a great likelihood that Elder Davidson could not survive the surgery. His parents came. The evening before the surgery, his father and I, in that hospital room in Toronto, Canada, placed our hands upon the head of that young missionary and gave him a blessing. What happened the following day provided for me a never-to-be-forgotten example of the influence of a true believer. Elder Davidson was in a six-bed ward in the hospital. The other beds were occupied by five men with a variety of illnesses. The morning of Elder Davidson's surgery, his bed was empty. I learned later that the nurse came into the room with the breakfast these husky men normally ate. She took a tray over to bed number one and said, Fried eggs this morning and I have an extra portion for you. Close quote. Bed number one was occupied by a man with his toe wrapped up in a bandage. He suffered an accident with his lawnmower. <laughs> Other than his injured toe, he was well physically. He said to the nurse, I'll not be eating this morning. All right, said the nurse. We'll give you breakfast to your partner in bed number two. As she went over to bed number two, he said, No, thank you. I think I'll not eat this morning. She said, That's two in a row. I don't understand you men. There's no one this morning in bed three. She glanced at the bed Roland Davidson had occupied. Then she went on to bed four, bed five, bed six. The answer was the same from each one. No, 
This morning I'm not hungry. The young lady put her hands on her hips and said, Every other morning you eat us out of the house and home. Today not one of you wants to eat. What's going on here? And the man who occupied bed number six came forth with the answer. He said, You see, bed number three is empty. Our friend Davidson is in the operating room under the surgeon's hands. He needs all the help he can get. He's a missionary for his church. While he's been lying on that bed, he has talked to us about the principles of his church, principles of prayer, of faith, and of fasting, wherein we call upon the Lord for blessings. He continued, We've come to admire Davidson as a person of great goodness and compassion and faith. He's an example of what a follower of Christ should be. He's touched our lives, each one of us, and we are fasting for him today. The operation performed on Roland Davidson was a success. In fact, when I attempted to pay the surgeon, he refused any money, saying, It would be dishonest for me to accept a fee. I never before performed surgery when my hands seemed to be guided by a power which was other than my own. No, he said, I wouldn't take a fee for the surgery which someone on high helped me to perform. Close quotes. My friends, may we be, as the Apostle Paul admonished, an example of the believers in word, in conversation, in charity, in spirit, in faith, in purity. May we always be known as followers of Christ, and as such, become as lights in the world. I want you to know that I can feel your collective goodness here today. You are choice sons and daughters of our Father in Heaven. Just think how much good can come to the world from our collective lights as we allow the gospel to radiate through us. Over the years, I've enjoyed collecting gems of wisdom from movies and musicals. I always have with me a pen and a piece of paper so I can write down any quotes I might find worthwhile. I have quite a collection. <laughs> On one occasion, some years ago, I was watching the animated movie The Lion King <laughs> with a few of my children. I took many notes, for I found lessons there. That which I desire to share with you is an exchange which takes place between a grown-up Simba and the spirit of his departed father. Mufasa, as Simba is doubting himself and his destiny, says, Mufasa's spirit, look inside yourself, Simba. You are more than what you have become. Remember who you are. Remember. To all who are here today, I say, look inside yourself. You are more than what you've become. Remember who you are. You are a son or daughter of our Heavenly Father. You come from His presence to live on this earth for a season and to live in such a way that you are an example of the believers and a true light to the world. When that season has ended, you will be able to return to live with Him once again. May this be your blessing as you nurture your testimony and as you follow the example set for you and for all of us by our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, the true light, 
which lighteth every man and woman that cometh into the world. Of him I testify. He is our Savior and our Redeemer, our Advocate with the Father. He's our Exemplar and our Strength. He's the light that shineth in darkness, that each of us here today may pledge to follow him and to be his lights among men and women is my prayer in his holy name, even Jesus Christ the Lord. Amen. You've been listening to Finding Center. Our theme today is Gladly Spread the Light. We've just heard from Thomas S. Monson. After the break, we'll return with John Telford for Gladly, Gladly We'll Walk in the Light. This is Finding Center, a daily hour of spiritual focus. Our theme today is Gladly Spread the Light. Next is John Telford, BYU Professor of Visual Arts at the time of this address, titled Gladly, Gladly We'll Walk in the Light. I was just sitting here thinking I played baseball for BYU back in the 60s, and uh, Glenn Tuckett was the coach at that time. He later became athletic director here at BYU. And I remember him saying from time to time, when you hit a home run and you come around third base, head toward home, act like you've been there before. (laughs) I haven't been here before, so I'm not sure quite how to act. But (laughs) it's an honor to represent my colleagues in the Department of Visual Arts and to be invited to share a few words and thoughts about my discipline of photography with you today. During the first decade following the organization of the Restored Church, the evolutionary steps leading to the invention of photography were taking place. To non-photographers, it's probably just an interesting coincidence. But as a photographer, I find it significant that photography, which literally means drawing with light, was invented about the same time the light of the gospel was restored to the earth. A photograph is created as light passes through a lens and forms an image on a substrate that is sensitized to light. The material only records the light, not the darkness. So-called photogenic drawings were miraculous to the various inventors in the first third of the 19th century and they continue to mystify practitioners today. The word light is frequently used in conjunction with the gospel of Jesus Christ. We use the word in two principal ways, the light that illuminates and the light that enlightens and gives understanding. As one who teaches the art of drawing with light, I have frequently incorporated the scriptural aspects of light in my classes. I admonish my students to go to the topical guide and examine the scriptures that refer to light and then apply those scriptures to their lives and to their photography. For example, the first few verses of Genesis record that God created light and divided it from darkness. While light was created on the first day, according to Genesis, it was not until the fourth day that God created the sun, moon, and stars. 
It would leave one to wonder whether the light created on the first day was light that illuminates or light that enlightens. Ecclesiastes 11 and 7 says, Truly the light is sweet, and a pleasant thing it is for the eye to behold the sun. As a photographer, I seek the sweet light, light that bathes my photographs with a warm glow and unusual brilliance. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus identified his disciples as the light of the world and counseled them to let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. My goal as a photographer has been to follow that counsel. Having produced hundreds of photographs that have been seen around the world in books and magazines and exhibitions and on the Internet, I frequently ask myself, are my photographs a reflection of my testimony, and are they being used to promote the values that I believe in? Am I using my talent as suggested in the 46th section of the Doctrine and Covenants for the benefit of those who love the Lord and him that seeketh so to do? I love the familiar lyrics of Clara McMaster's Teach me to walk in the light. Teach me to walk in the light of his love. Teach me to pray to my Father above. Teach me to know of the things that are right. Teach me, teach me to walk in the light. Each of the three verses ends with an admonition that seems to grow stronger in resolve and commitment. Teach me, teach me to walk in the light. And then, always, always, to walk in the light. And finally, gladly, gladly, we'll walk in the light. Photography, like other contemporary media, has been used for both good and evil. Sadly, the evils of pornography that are frequently preached about by our church leaders have their most common roots through the lens of a camera. The seductive influence of advertising that lures us toward evil habits frequently comes through the camera's lens. Practices that we are counseled to avoid are often glorified by a camera. The evils of our day are portrayed as being good, exciting, and sought after through the lens of a camera. Think about the number of times that sin is packaged or framed in a beautiful, enticing wrapping. And yet, the scriptures focus on the correct picture. Both the Bible and the Book of Mormon include these words of Isaiah, Woe unto them that call evil good and good evil, that put darkness for light and light for darkness, that put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Isaiah's words are easily understood in this scripture. Sadly, Photography has frequently been used more like an eclipse than as a medium to exhibit the light. Again, I ask myself, how do I know if I'm being more like an eclipse or more like the light that glorifies? The Doctrine and Covenants teaches, that which does not edify is not of God and is darkness. That which is of God is light. And he that receiveth light and continueth in God receiveth more light, and that light groweth brighter and brighter 
until the perfect day? It's an interesting question to ask about anything we do. Does my work edify and does it celebrate light or does it promote and endorse darkness and evil? I like the counsel that Paul gave the Thessalonian saints. Ye are all the children of light and the children of the day. We are not of the night nor of darkness. As members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, we are the children of light. We have the light of Christ. Always, always, we'll walk in the light. A few years ago, I had the assignment of supervising several students who were completing internships in New York City. Included in the interns were photographers, graphic designers, illustrators, and studio artists. They were working with some very prestigious individuals in their respective fields, individuals of considerable influence and notoriety. Part of my responsibility was to follow up with each of the internship providers and see how our BYU interns were performing. While it is sometimes tempting for the interns to try to fit in and do the kind of work that is frequently seen in the world, they were counseled to be true to their culture and upbringing and to be just who you are, and you'll stand out and be noticed. As I contacted the various mentors, I received almost the same response. They are so refreshing. They are so culturally solid. We love having these BYU interns. Send us more. I recall one very important and highly respected photographer, one who we felt had given us a gift by accepting a BYU intern, thanking me for sending the intern and saying, He's so non-New York. He's so refreshing. (laughs) He's changed us. He said it three times. He's changed us. And then added, and we think we've changed him a little as well. (laughs) National Geographic photographer DeWitt Jones described the difference of being the best in the world and being the best for the world. To be the best in the world, all of the attention is focused on the individual. To be the best for the world, the attention is focused on others. These interns, and hopefully all of us, are preparing to be the best for the world. Always, always, we'll walk in the light. I love to read the account of Moroni's visit to the Prophet Joseph Smith on the night of September 21, 1823. In detail, he describes the light that filled his room and surrounded the heavenly being. He describes three visitations during that night, which consumed the entire night. When each ended, the Prophet observed that the light in the room began to gather immediately around the person who had been speaking to me. And it continued to do so until the room was again left dark, except just around him, when instantly I saw, as it were, a conduit open right up into heaven. And he ascended until he entirely disappeared. The light that both illuminated and enlightened the young prophet 
is also the light that the angel ascended upon. It appears to me that in the presence of the angel Moroni, a resurrected being full of light, that Joseph's capacity for understanding and recall was greatly enhanced. He knew when the messenger was quoting scripture and when Moroni's words varied a little from the way it reads in the Bible. It would seem to imply that Joseph knew word for word what had been told to him after hearing it three times that night and once again the next day. It would indicate, as the Doctrine and Covenant says, that if your eye be single to my glory, your whole bodies shall be filled with light, and there shall be no darkness in you. And that body which is filled with light comprehendeth all things. Teach me, teach me to walk in the light. May I share with you some examples of the light that has illuminated some of my photographs. While en route to an appointment with a very important photographer, I passed a stand of trees with morning light streaming through the fog and the trees. With a dutiful commitment to being on time from my appointment, I drove past the scene. The image of the trees and the light etched deeply in my mind as I drove until it hurt more to go past the trees than it did to think that I might be late for my appointment. Go toward the light, I heard myself saying. <laughs> I turned the car around and went back, hoping that it had not changed, and also hoping that the photographer with whom I had an appointment would understand the priority of the photograph. Gratefully, the light was unchanged. Later, when I drove by the trees after my appointment, the fog was gone, and the light had changed, and the magic had disappeared. The beauty was in the light. There is a grouping of five trees located a couple of hundred yards from where Ansel Adams' home was in Yosemite Valley. I took a workshop with him in 1974 and would get up each morning to go out and make photographs. When I saw these trees in the pre-sunrise glow that illuminated them, I began to set up the large format camera as quickly as I could. It's a cumbersome process that after years of experience I've been able to reduce to approximately five minutes. But at that time it took me about 10 to 20 minutes to set up and make the tedious adjustments to the camera. During the setup time, the sun came up. The trees were the same, but the light was different. The light had changed from soft brilliance to harsh contrast. The ethereal morning light had quickly changed, and I missed my opportunity. Without making an exposure, I put everything away. The next morning, I returned to the same spot 30 minutes earlier and again set up the camera. By the time light readings were taken and exposure calculated, the sun had fully risen, and I missed it again. The third morning, I came even earlier. Again, I set up the camera, calculated exposure, and this time was able to make the photograph. It is a photograph that is still very important to me, and one that in hindsight I can apply the counsel of President James E. Faust. If you can't be on time, then be early.
I have to admit that the style of my photographs is not readily accepted in contemporary art circles. The mainstream art community summarily rejects photographs that celebrate the beauty of the land as being overly romantic and derivative. In a recent exhibition of my landscape photographs, I wrote the following artist statement. I recall a discussion in a seminar class during my graduate studies. In it, the instructor quoted from an article that went something like this. When everyone was hot, I was cool. When everyone was cool, I was hot. I feel my work, my career is summed up in that quote. I have been doing cool color photographs for 20 years, while black and white has been hot. I have been out doing pristine photographs of the landscape, while contemporary photographs of dirt and grit and decay have been in. I have never been part of the current trend in photography, but I continue to produce work that I am passionate about. My photographs are about beauty and the ephemeral things of the world. While I photograph the landscape that seems eternal and unchanging, I am more interested in the light and weather that is constantly changing and fleeting. I am interested in things that humans did not create and have no control over, things that humans stand in awe of in spite of the fact that they have been seen hundreds of times. The colors of autumn, the glow of the land under the ethereal light of sunrise, an emotion-filled sky before and after a storm. In a world where we are preoccupied with challenging the intellect, I choose to nurture the soul. I choose to celebrate the positive things of our world. Again, quoting from National Geographic photographer DeWitt Jones, Instead of complaining about what's wrong with the situation, as we often do, ask what's right with it. By celebrating what's right, we find the energy to fix what's wrong. I saw an angel in the stone, said Michelangelo, and carved to set it free. End of quote. Early in my tenure as a faculty member at BYU, I began photographing historic buildings of the church. These included historic tabernacles and meeting houses found mostly in Utah and Idaho. Standing within the walls of these historic sanctuaries, I feel the spirit of testimony and commitment of their pioneer builders. Working almost exclusively with the native materials that were found near their homes, they transformed an inhospitable environment into places of worship where the light of Christ could be felt. Their devotion to their religion and to their God is seen in the craftsmanship exhibited in every detail of these sanctuaries. The stained glass, the intricately carved woodwork, the hand-painted pews, doors, columns, and railings all invite the Spirit. One such example is seen in the Provo Tabernacle. On the rostrum located behind the pulpit is a detailed carving created by T.M. Allman that extends the entire width of the stand. In the center is a beautifully carved rendering of a sago lily. 
during the first winter following the arrival of the Mormon pioneers to these valleys. Sago lilies growing wild on the hillside of the Wasatch Mountains gave needed relief to the destitute and starving saints. Like manna in the desert, seagull lilies fed the children of God. Seen in the Provo Tabernacle, behind the pulpit, behind the speaker, it is a reminder that a loving Father in Heaven feeds us both physically and spiritually. In addition to the tabernacles and meeting houses, I also began photographing our beautiful temples. Everything we do in the Church today eventually focuses toward the temple. Nothing we build, save possibly the family, is more important than our temples. I have had the privilege of doing several books with my friend and colleague, Dr. Susan Easton Black, noted professor of Church history and doctrine. In making the photographs for these books, I have been blessed with the opportunity of traveling to significant Church history sites and seeing them in the most incredible light and ethereal conditions imaginable. The Smith family log home, where Joseph was living at the time of the first vision, and also where the visitation of the angel Moroni occurred. The Sacred Grove. I photograph trees all over the world, but none are more important to me than these trees. Peter Whitmer Sr. log home, where the restored church was organized on April 6, 1830. The beautiful and significant valley of Adam on Diamond in Missouri. The 70s Hall in Nauvoo which was the original missionary training center. Joseph Smith's Red Brick Store, where the Relief Society was organized in March 1842 and where the first presentation of the endowment in this dispensation was given in May of that same year, 1842. The newly rebuilt Nauvoo Temple, seen from Parley Street, and the view that Wilford Woodruff had when he wrote, I was in Nauvoo on the 26th day of May for the last time, and left the City of the Saints feeling that most likely I was taking a final farewell of Nauvoo for this life. I looked upon the temple and the city as they receded from view, and asked the Lord to preserve it as a monument to the sacrifice of His saints. Also done with Susan Easton Black was a book on the Holy Lands that included these photographs captioned here with the scriptures. Shepherd Hill in Bethlehem. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. The Mount of Beatitudes. And seeing the multitudes, he went up into a mountain. And when he was set, his disciples came unto him, and he opened his mouth and taught them. Sunset on the Sea of Galilee. When they had rowed about five and twenty or thirty furlongs, they see Jesus walking on the sea and drawing nigh unto the ship. Jerusalem, the holy city. 
O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how oft would I have gathered thy children together as a hen doth gather her brood, but ye would not. A thorn bush at sunrise, and the soldiers plaited a crown of thorns and put it on his head. And finally, the garden tomb. Ye seek Jesus of Nazareth, which was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. Behold the place where they laid him. One of my journal entries from the Holy Lands reads as follows. I find myself wondering that I walk today where Jesus walked. My intellect tells me, no. But my heart and soul wants to believe that I did, and so wills it to my mind. We came to Jerusalem, to Israel, hoping to draw closer to Jesus, wanting to walk the path where Jesus had walked. Many times during our stay, we lamented that we were not feeling of his presence. The schedule was too hectic, or the noise or other distractions got in the way. While there were many times when we were touched emotionally and even spiritually, even to the point of tears, yet there was something more we wanted, something unfulfilled. While sitting on the Mount of Olives, and again while looking into the tomb in the peaceful garden, an answer came to me, similar to the one given to Mary when she came looking for him. He is not here. He is risen. Simple yet so profound, we find him today where he promised we would. We find him when we partake of the sacrament. We find him when we are gathered together in his name. We find him in his holy house. We find him in keeping his commandments. I came to realize that the important question is not did I walk today where Jesus walked? But rather, am I walking today where Jesus would have me walk? I invite each of you to join with me in the resolve that gladly, gladly, we'll walk in the light. In the sacred name of Jesus Christ, amen. You've been listening to Finding Center. Join us every weekday for an hour of inspiration and spiritual focus. Today's theme was Gladly Spread the Light with thoughts from Thomas S. Monson and John Telford. Find links to the full text, audio, and video of these addresses at byuradio.org slash findingcenter. Finding Center is a production of BYU Broadcasting.